He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. He who believes in Him is not condemned. Condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Before we begin our study, let's make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord. We do this through the use of 1 John 1.9, confession of sin, and the privacy of our priesthood. It is our privilege as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that we have a grace recovery mechanism so that whenever we sin, whenever we are outside the plan of God, we can immediately recover fellowship with the Lord and the filling of the Holy Spirit through the use of 1 John 1.9. And so let's make sure that we are in fellowship. We have a few minutes of silent prayer to make sure that we are prepared for the study of God's Word under the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come to you this morning to worship you and to sing your praises because of all that you have done for us in sending your Son, Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity, who did not give up his deity, but took on humanity, so that in undiminished deity and true humanity, he was able to go to the cross for us and to die as our substitute, that he might bear in his body on the cross all the sins of the human race. On the basis of his redemptive work, we have an eternal relationship with you by faith alone in Christ alone. And you have provided for us through your word everything we need to know in life, that we might advance to spiritual maturity. And this is done through the gracious gift of God the Holy Spirit who indwells us and fills us and is our teacher and guide and the one who helps us to understand your word. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to see how these things apply to our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John 6. We continue the Bread of Life discourse in the 6th chapter of John. So far in this chapter, we have seen two miracles that Jesus performed, one public and the other more or less private to his disciples. The first, which sets the stage for everything that comes after, is the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 men, probably included somewhere between 12 to 15,000 when you add up the women and children as well. And on that hillside by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus showed that he was absolutely sufficient to take care of the needs of the human race, and he provided in abundance for their physical nourishment in order to demonstrate that he can provide in abundance for us in terms of our spiritual Nourishment. In other words, there is no situation, there is no difficulty, there is no circumstance in our life that is outside the omniscience of God and outside the plan of God. God made it, God is perfect and His plan is perfect and He has provided a perfect solution for us in every single arena of life. This is the miracle that Jesus performed, and it was to demonstrate his Messiahship. Remember, in the Gospel of John, John is seeking to demonstrate to his readers the, the signs that Jesus performed in his life. And he says in his conclusion in John 20, 30, and 31, But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Now, we saw last time that there is, and in the previous Sundays, that there was a negative response to the message. They were glad their bellies were filled, but they were rejecting the claim, and they did not see and understand what he was doing in relationship to his messianic office. Uh, They recognized that they had somebody in front of him that was not the normal person, and they viewed him, though, as a political power that the crowd could utilize in order to fulfill their political agenda to overthrow Rome. Verse 14, they said, 
when they saw the sign which he had performed, this is of truth the prophet who has come into the world. In a sense, they thought, wow, we have a great welfare system here. He can feed us today. If he can feed us continuously as, as Moses, this is their view now, God fed the Israelites we saw last time, but they're thinking it was Moses. If Moses fed them for 40 years, if he can do that, we'll overthrow Rome, we'll have a welfare system, we'll never hunger again. So they're looking to Jesus as a political figure and a political solution, not as a spiritual solution. In fact, as his teaching continues, they harden themselves to the spiritual solution. What we see in this chapter is as it begins, Jesus is at the height of his popularity. This crowd numbers close to 15,000. The multitudes are with him, they're following him, and yet as he goes through the chapter and teaches them some doctrine, teaches them some basic Christology and some basic soteriology as they're learning some things about salvation and about Christ, they reject it. So that when we come to the end of the chapter, we see that doctrine does not attract people. Doctrine tends to drive people away. Because the more detail you get in the scripture, the more it challenges the, the basic human viewpoint assumptions and the autonomous assumptions of man, and it challenges the humility of man, and in arrogance, man rejects the truth of God. So the further you go into the Scriptures, the more you teach what Jesus taught, the more you explicate the doctrines in the epistles of the New Testament, the more people will reject it and turn to legalism, and turn to various human viewpoint solutions to their problems. Now, we have to set the agenda here, or set the context, a little more clearly. Remember, the crowd has a political agenda. In their autonomy, they want to set forth their own authority. They have rejected the authority of God, and they are acting as their own authority. As I've said before, John 6 and 1 Samuel 8 are probably the greatest chapters in the entire Bible from which we can derive information for political theory. Because in 1 Samuel 1, 8, or excuse me, 1 Samuel 8, God warns Israel about the dangers of centralization of power in one person and oppressive taxation and how that destroys freedom. Here we see the, the power of the mob, and the Greek word for the mob is demos, and when you connect that with the word for ruling, which is krasis, you get democracy, which is mob rule. And so we get a clear statement here of why the mob can't rule. Because when the masses want to rule, when the majority wants to rule, they get the idea that the majority sets the standards. They uh, derive the standards from themselves. There's no external standard. Now that's the difference between a democracy and a republic. We live in a republic. In a republican form of government, you set forth a constitution which has the absolutes clearly articulated within that and you operate on the basis of the rule of law and not on the whims of the masses. The only time in human history when any culture has tried to any degree to have a successful democracy was in 5th century B.C. in Athens and that was a miserable failure. What's happened in this country, especially since the middle of the 19th century, is we have moved away from a republican concept of government to a democratic concept of government. And this is exemplified in history in the the 18th century, in the educational system in the colonies, that culture in human history that was held up to be the highest culture to emulate was uh, was Roman history and the Roman Republic. But by the uh, early to middle 19th century, the model that was held up in the uh, schools and public schools and private schools of America was Greek civilization. And so when you saw this shift from the Roman concept to the Greek concept, there was a shift to the emphasis on the uh, rule of the individual as opposed to the rule of government. And the more that individual liberties began to be uh, emphasized and the, the role of the individual, the more you lost the concept of the whole. In a Republican theory, you maintain a proper tension between the whole and the individual. 
Democracy emphasizes the individual over against the whole, which emphasizes personal arrogance. And we see it gone to seed in our generation where people are emphasizing their own personal rights and every minority group, everybody who can find somebody else that they can link together with, hold uh, arm in arm and march on Washington and they get their own minority rights. And that emphasis there as opposed to the whole and you start getting into all kinds of philosophical shifts like we have today with, with um, multiculturalism. Instead of the melting pot, everybody comes to America and finds their ethnic minority group and they, they separate out into a different enclaves and each one getting their own emphasis. And that is ultimately destructive to the culture. In this chapter, Jesus is going to say certain things. And if we miss what I just said, if we miss this context of emphasizing, of the crowd emphasizing their own authority to set the standards, their own authority to set the agenda, if we miss the point that the crowd is making a strong claim to autonomy, then when we look at what Jesus says, we will miss the boat, we'll end up like many hyper-Calvinists, and we will misinterpret some of his statements to say that God has all the say and man has no say. Jesus is going to make some strong claims to God's authority in this chapter. But the reason he does that is because the crowd is claiming to be the ultimate authority in the universe. And what Jesus is doing in making these statements is bringing them back to the reality that God is the ultimate initiator of everything in human history, and he is the one who controls human history. Not at the expense of individual responsibility and human volition, but that the emphasis on individual responsibility is not autonomy. There is a difference. Dependence on the authority of God, orientation to the authority of God, does not negate human responsibility and individual volition. God decreed in eternity past that his sovereignty would coexist with, with human responsibility and volition in human history. He will not override it, but he will superintend and control history to bring about his ends without violating human history. Now, we saw last time that Jesus began the bread of life discourse in Capernaum, and the people came to him, uh, and Jesus says in verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. See, they are operating on a physical plane and operating on a material agenda and a political agenda. And Jesus tries to shift their focus. This is the hardest thing to do with people who are locked into a materialistic mindset. He shifts their focus from the physical, or he tries to shift their focus from the physical to the spiritual. In verse 27, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on him the Father Even God has set his seal. Then he begins the discourse down in verse 32. He says, uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. So they say, Lord, give us this bread. Now, they really don't want the bread. They're still thinking materially. They're like the woman at the well when Jesus promised to give her water that would spring forth to eternal life. She says, where is this water? And she's thinking physically. Well, they're thinking physically as well. So Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, this is the other important verse for properly interpreting this whole section. Notice the Hebrew parallelism here. Jesus says... He who comes to me shall not hunger. The main verb there is come, erkomai, which is your normal everyday word for coming or or entering someplace. He who comes to me shall not hunger. And the parallelism is the next phrase, he who believes in me shall never thirst. So in this verse, erkomai is used in synonymous parallelism with Faith, I've got to write this in English, erkamai, is used in parallelism with pistis. 
So that tells us that from now on, when we see the word erkomai in the text, we need to think believe, because that's what Jesus means. The person who comes to me by faith alone in Christ alone. The person who accepts the free gift of salvation. That's what he means by coming to me. He who accepts the free gift will not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. And we covered that down to the end of verse 40. So this time we start in verse 41. Now, it's uncertain whether this was one long extended discourse by the Lord or whether as he was in Capernaum, he taught in one place and then moved to another place. And in between, you have the reaction of the Jews. And then uh, I think that's probably the way it worked until he ends up in the synagogue at Capernaum where he, he teaches them. Now, the interesting thing in terms of background is we have recovered, uh, and archaeologists have recovered, the site of the synagogue in Capernaum. It's interesting to note that over the lintel, that's the top piece over a doorway, over the lintel of the entrance to the synagogue of Capernaum, there are various figures carved. The figures are of God's giving manna to the Israelites in the wilderness in the Old Testament. Isn't it interesting how all these things come together? The backdrop for this whole chapter is found in Exodus chapter 16, and we'll turn there in a minute. As Jesus has taught them that he is the bread of life who has come down from heaven, notice the response, the negative response of the Jews in verse 41. The Jews, therefore, were grumbling. This is the uh, Greek imperfect active indicative of and gongunzo, which means to murmur, to grumble, to complain, to gripe. And they are groaning and griping and murmuring among themselves. You can insert any verb you wish there as a synonym. And their focus is on him. They are rejecting his provision. They are rejecting his proposal. So Jesus challenges them at the very point, the very assumption of their human viewpoint agenda. And what we see here is a conflict between Jesus and the multitude. Whose agenda is going to prevail? Who is going to win? Well, to understand this, we have to go back and look at Exodus 16. So hold your place there in John 6 and turn back to the second book of the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 16. The Israelites have been emancipated from slavery in Egypt. They have crossed the Red Sea. And now they are in the wilderness and there is no, there is no food for them. Notice what we find as a key word in this chapter. Exodus 16.2, the whole congregation of the sons of Israelite grumbled. Exodus 16:7 Moses is speaking and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord for he hears your grumblings against the Lord and what are we that you grumble against us verse 8 and Moses said this will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning for the Lord hears your grumblings which you grumble against him and what are we your grumblings are not against us but against the Lord verse 9 come near before the Lord for he has heard your grumblings in verse 12, I have, uh, God is speaking, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. So I guess if we were going to choose a key word for this chapter, it would be grumbling, the griping and complaining of the Israelites. Here God has provided so much for them. He has delivered them from slavery, but they have no doctrine. They have no capacity to appreciate their no freedom because they are focused on a political solution and not the spiritual solution. Now, This is the Exodus generation, and the majority of these Jews are believers, in contrast to John chapter 6, where the majority are unbelievers. But there is a parallel between the two events, and it is intentional that in Exodus chapter 16, it is Yahweh who provides for the physical nourishment of the Jews in the 
test of going through the uh, wilderness of sin. That is uh, really pronounced sin. It is not sin in an English word. It is the Hebrew word, and it is the root from which we get the term Sinai. So don't think of that as the wilderness of sin, as a place where they were just living in carnality. I'm sure there are some people who have probably taken it that way. This is God's provision of, of manna. Now, look it down at verse 9. And Moses said to Aaron, after they have griped and complained about not having food, verse 4, the Lord gives a provision. I'll skip around a little bit. Behold, the Lord says, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Notice, it's a daily provision. God does not dump it all at once. It is one day at a time. Why? What is God teaching? He's teaching two or three fundamental principles that we must have if we're going to advance in the spiritual life. Number one, the faith rest drill. Constant dependence upon God. Mixing faith with the promises of God. That's the first principle he's teaching. The second principle he's teaching is grace orientation. That God is going to provide enough for everybody. It doesn't matter if they're griping. It doesn't matter if they weren't griping. It doesn't matter if they're obedient, disobedient, a believer or unbeliever. God is going to provide for everybody on a day-by-day basis. So they have to become oriented to grace. And then third, they have to be become oriented to doctrine. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will, what? Walk in my instruction. That's doctrinal orientation. So what we see here is that, as we have been teaching in our series on James, is that God has devised ten stress busters. That's what we've called them. Stress busters. We all go through adversity in life. Adversity is inevitable, but stress is optional. And these ten stress busters begin with getting into the plan of God or recovery, which is confession, the God's grace recovery system, followed by the filling of the Holy Spirit, who, who is the power for walking or living the spiritual life. This is followed by the faith rest drill. Fourth, grace orientation. And fifth, doctrinal orientation. Now, as we have studied on Wednesday night, these five stress busters basically define spiritual infancy. When you are a brand new believer and you are a spiritual baby, you are commanded to desire, that is to hunger for, to make a priority of being nourished by the Word of God. Now, as you begin to grow, the first thing that happens is you learn that you still sin. And you have to recover from that, and that's through confession. And you recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. And then there are three skills that you have to develop, three more skills. In fact, you can look at all of these as spiritual skills. A skill is something you have to practice. A skill is a technique, something you have to master in order to handle certain circumstances. Those of you who have had any experience in music know that you have to practice technique over and over again. And it's not a lot of fun. There's not necessarily any tune to it. But it is simply to train your fingers or whatever you're using on your instrument and your, your, your mouth, your embouchure, whatever it may be, in order to be able to, to, when you get to a good piece of music, to be able to play it. So you have these skills that we develop so that when we get to application situations or tests, we have practiced these things so that it is the responsibility of the believer every time you get in a situation to think, think, am I going to operate on doctrine or on human viewpoint at this point? Doctrine or human viewpoint? Doctrine or human viewpoint? What's the doctrine to apply? And these are the fundamental stress busters that characterize spiritual childhood and infancy. The sixth is the personal sense of our eternal destiny, which is where we begin to learn that we're living today in order to prepare for eternity. That who we, the decisions we make today determine who we will be in all of eternity. And this is when we begin to shift 
from childhood to adulthood, and that is known as spiritual adolescence. And it is at this point that most believers bail out and fail in the spiritual life. Then we get into the adult characteristics, 7, 8, 9, and 10. 7, 8, and 9 are the love triplex. These are related to one another, and they build together. The first is personal love for God, number 7. Number 8 is impersonal love for all mankind or unconditional love. And number 9 is occupation with Christ, where we put our focus, the focus of our adoration and our attention is consumed by the person of Jesus Christ. And the result of all of this, the crowning point is the inner happiness the joy of Jesus Christ where we share the joy of God in our lives and sharing the happiness of God. So these are the ten stress busters that God has provided for us to handle every situation in life. These are the spiritual skills. And faith rest real grace orientation and doctrinal orientation become fundamental to any advance in the spiritual life. That's why when God brings the Jews out of Egypt, the first thing he's teaching them has to do with daily physical nourishment and sustenance, and they have to rely upon God day by day, moment by moment. He's not going to give it to them all at once, and they're learning these three things together. That's the same thing that Jesus is teaching over in John chapter 6. It has to do with the spiritual life and God's provision for it. So let's go back to John 6. Now that we have seen this, I'm getting ahead of myself again. Back in Exodus 16, verse 12, God says to Moses, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And at evening God provided quails that covered the camp. And in the morning, verse 13, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. And when the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It's the bread which the Lord, which Yahweh has given to you to eat. So this is called the bread of heaven. It is called the food of angels in the Psalms. And this is God's daily nourishment. Now, that's the background. Having briefly gone over that, let's turn back to John 6 and address the passage here. It begins with the response, the reaction of the Jews. Jews, therefore, were grumbling. Nothing's changed. They're still in reaction to the provision of God. God chose Israel not because they would be the most spiritually mature people on earth, but I think He chose them because of their reaction, that God would show that they are the most obstinate, stiff-necked people, as the Old Testament says, and if God will be gracious enough to save them, then God will save everyone. And at this point, and that is not an anti-Semitic remark, by the way, The Jews are God's chosen people, and one of the worst sins that people can fall into is (coughs) anti-Semitism. Now, one of the interesting questions that people raise at times in life is, why, if God has chosen the Jews, have they gone through such misery in life? The persecution under Torquemada and the Spanish Inquisition, the various pogroms of Russia, the Holocaust under Nazi Germany, Why has this gone on if these are truly God's chosen people? And it is because of what happens in this chapter and in the rest of this gospel. It is because right now, at this moment in history, they have the opportunity to end all suffering for all history. They have the opportunity to bring in the golden age of the messianic rule of the greater son of David, and they reject the Messiah. And because they rejected the Messiah, because they rejected the King, God is disciplining them as a people. They had the opportunity. They had God incarnate in their presence and they snubbed their nose at Him. They turned their back on Him and rejected Him when they had the opportunity to end all suffering for all time. 
And because of that, God is disciplining them. But in the end, God in His grace will restore them to the land during the tribulation. And there will be hundreds of thousands of Jews that will turn to Jesus Christ as their Savior, accept Him as Messiah. And then He will return at the second advent. And then He will establish the Messianic kingdom. But the suffering that they are going through is part of God's program of divine discipline for the nation because of their rejection of the of Messiah. And it has nothing to do with their inherent failures uh, or their inherent inadequacies as a race, but it has everything to do with God's plan of divine discipline. But nothing has changed from the Exodus generation to the generation at the Incarnation. They are still rejecting grace. They are still operating on human viewpoint. They are not operating on faith. And so when Jesus says that He is the bread that came down out of heaven, they reject that. And look at their response. They're taking a typical response to try to refute His argument and disprove His claim by taking a superficial approach. Verse 42, And they were saying, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, who father and mother we know? How does He now say? Where does He get off saying, I've come down out of heaven. Now, we've known this boy. We've known him since he was in diapers back in Nazareth. We know his mom and his dad. See, that's their argument. We know his parents. But see, they don't. They're revealing their ignorance. They don't know his father. His father is God the Father. He was born when God the Holy Spirit uh, impregnated Mary, fertilized the ovum in Mary's womb so that she could give birth to a child who was undiminished deity and true humanity and untainted by Adam's original sin and would be born without a sin nature. So they don't know his father at all, and they think they do. They're operating on arrogance, and they have a superficial response to just disprove his claim. And they're saying, we know Joseph and Mary, so how can he say he came down out of heaven? And Jesus can say he came down out of heaven because his father is God the Father, and he was born in a unique way through virgin conception and virgin birth. So verse 41 and 42 shows the response of the people in their superficiality and in their arrogance. Then we see Jesus respond in verse 43. And notice how Jesus, how do we picture him? The meek, the mild, the lowly Jesus. He is hard-nosed here. He goes nose to nose with his crowd and he challenges them at the very root of their thinking. He is not going to put up with their arrogance. He is not going to put up with their rejection of God. And he is going to take a very hard stand against them. He doesn't commiserate with them. He doesn't say, well, you've had a hard life. You're really under the thumb of the, or under the heel of the Roman Empire, and it's really tough with all of this excessive taxation and all of their militaristic presence around here. It's really tough. Let's all get together and hold hands and, and sing kumbaya together and have just a wonderful emotional experience. That's not how Jesus handles it. There's no pseudo compassion here. There's no psycho babble that you guys just have a poor self-image, and so let's uh, let's figure out what the root of that is, and and I'm going to help you get a good self-image. We don't see any of that. He challenged them. He challenges them directly, and he authoritatively orders them to stop their moaning and groaning and grumbling and complaining in verse 43. This is not a simple. It, it, sometimes you lose things. When you read things. Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. Shut up and stop griping. That's more what he said. He wanted their attention. Now pay attention to me. Get your minds off yourselves. Quit being so self-absorbed with your pain and your misery and your own lives. And let's focus on some spiritual truth here. Verse 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him on the last day. Now, this is a very important verse. 
It's a verse that is often taken out of context and often mistranslated and often used by hyper-Calvinists to argue for what they call irresistible grace, which I have heard characterized as something akin to divine rape. That is a misinterpretation of this passage, but we need to take a few moments to examine it. Remember the context. They are asserting their authority over against God's authority. They are on negative volition. They are resisting common grace. At the point of God consciousness, they were negative to God. Remember, every single human being is born and goes through three stages of development. First, they become self-conscious. They are aware that they exist. And you see a little baby in the crib and they look at their fingers and their toes and stick them in their mouth. And eventually they begin to realize that they have an independent existence. Then they begin to look around and they see other, other people and they learn, uh, they develop a consciousness for others. And then finally they develop a God consciousness. And at that point, and it varies from culture to culture in the human race. I think that sometimes in, in our culture, especially in many Christian homes where the parents expose their children to Bible stories and the gospel from infancy, you can have God consciousness at, as early, I've seen it as early as two years old where kids have responded positively to the gospel and understood it. But in other cultures, it may not be until they're in their teen years or even into their 20s in a more primitive culture. But at God consciousness, you have a decision to make. Do I want to know more about God, or do I want to just worship the the creation, the trees and the stars and, and nature? The Jews here had gone on negative volition to God, and, in, and into the vacuum moved religion. Now, do not confuse religiosity with positive volition to God. When people reject God, they are often very positive to religion, but they have rejected the truth. They're still operating on arrogance, and churches are filled with people who are operating on arrogance and on religion and on legalism, and they have no concept of grace. Their minds are made up with uh, how they think Christianity ought to be, and they don't want to be confused with the facts of Scripture. And this happens in church after church after church. I've seen so many churches that have sort of a revolving door on the pulpit. And as a pastor comes in who tries to teach the Word, about a year or a year and a half later, the people begin to realize that they're being challenged in the core of their thinking, and they don't want that. They just want somebody who's going to pat them on the back make them feel good, sing all the right kind of songs so they go home feeling a little better about life and they haven't really been challenged to learn anything. And uh, once they, somebody begins to teach them the Bible, they fire him and they go for somebody else. And they just keep going through that cycle. Every year and a half or two years, they get another pastor. Well, this is the kind of mentality here. They're, they're negative volition and they are resisting God. And Jesus is going to make some key points here in the next three verses. So we're going to move a little slowly to pick it up. Starts off, he says, No one can come to me. In the Greek, we have a compound pronoun, udes. Now this is the negative, O-U for no, and this is The word for one, E-I-S. No one. No one. That is an exclusive term and it includes every member of the human race. No one. It is. No one can come to me. Now this is where we get into the verb. And the verb here is the aorist infinitive of dunamai. Looks like this in the Greek. D-U-N-O-M-A-I. It's the word for, usually it's translated can. It's the word for ability. And it is the word from which we get our English word, dynamite. Now, some people say this is the power of God, so if you want to have the dynamite of God in your life, and they go on, and that totally misses the point. It has to do with ability. No one, no human being has the ability to come to me, no one has the ability, excuse me, this was the uh, aorist active 
aorist active indicative, not a, not an imperative, uh, not an imperative or infinitive that comes next. Aorist active indicative here plus the infinitive from erkomai to come. Now, what did we just say about erkomai? Here we have the infinitive of purpose, E-R-C-H-O-M-A-I. No one has the ability to come to me. What does that mean? Remember the context. Go back to verse 35. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall not thirst. So what does Jesus mean by coming to him? He means believing in him. So this is synonymous with belief or faith alone in Christ alone. No one can believe in me, let's paraphrase it that way, unless the Father who sent me draws him. What is this saying? Is this saying that it's not up to your volition, it's up to God's volition? No, God's not the one who who makes your decision for you. He will never override your volition. What this is saying is that God exercised in eternity past what is called antecedent, that's because it comes prior, antecedent grace. This is the divine initiative in eternity past to establish a plan of salvation to overcome the resistance of the sin nature and bring men into a saving relationship with Him. It's what we normally refer to as the Council of Divine Decrees and God's establishment of the plan of salvation in eternity past. Then here I'm going to draw a circle. This is all of creation. And within creation we have certain cause-effect laws and principles. But God is the initiator and He is the ultimate cause of everything. This is a different type of cause than this. Don't get confused. When you confuse this type of cause effect with God's category one type of cause effect, then you end up in some sort of fatalism and determinism. That's not what this passage is saying. What this passage is saying is that God is the one who took the initiative in eternity past in order to provide salvation for the human race. And if it weren't for God's control over human history, everything would evaporate. You are not in control. God is the one who is in control. No one, no human being has the ability to believe in me unless the Father who sent me, notice here he is subtly reminding them of his own authority orientation that he is totally subservient to the Father. He is not acting independent of the Father's plan as they are, but he is acting in dependence upon the Father's plan. It is the Father who sent me, and I am carrying out his mission. And then we have the verb, the important verb, draws him. Now this is the aorist active subjunctive of helkuo. Now, this rough breathing mark is usually transliterated in H. It's H-E-L-K-U-O. And helkuo means to draw, to drag, to attract, or to pull something that gives resistance or, and to overcome that resistance. Now, what will happen is you will come across some Calvinists at some point or another who will commit a semantic fallacy that is called an illegitimate totality transfer. Now, isn't that a nice fancy phrase? And that, that I will explain that. Every word that we utter has a root meaning. I'll illustrate that by putting this small circle here. I have a root meaning. But then it has some secondary meanings and then various other nuances and shades of meaning. Now, sometimes you can have a word and it will have this shade of meaning. For example, in John chapter 21, verse 11, we read, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land. He's out fishing. He's caught a load of fish. And he drags these fish into shore. He's dragging them, pulling them against their will. They don't want to be caught. So here we have a nuance of dragging against the will. 
We also have that nuance in Acts 16.19, which reads, But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they, that is the authorities, or the crowd, excuse me, the crowd seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. They're going to arrest them, and they're clearly dragging Paul and Silas against their will. So here we have this same nuance. Now, is that nuance of against the will inherent to the root meaning of the word helkuo? No. But what happens is when you take this and make that the root meaning, then you're going to end up making John 6.44 say that God drags everybody into salvation and overcomes their volition. In other words, God is the one who drags them in, kicking and screaming into the kingdom of heaven, and nobody wants to go there. And that's because that at the core of Calvinism, and you can always remember Calvinism by the acronym TULIP, and the very primary assumption is how they define the first word T. TULIP stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, Christ died only for the elect, irresistible grace, and they'll go here for irresistible grace. Drag you kicking and screaming into salvation and the perseverance of the saints. Now, that is a that is an integrated system. They define the T as total depravity. And how they define total depravity is crucial. Because their definition of total depravity is that man, because he is a sinner, cannot and will not ever want to know God. He will always resist God and is hell-bent on rejection of God no matter what God does. And it's only... Only And God must choose them and then drag them into the kingdom in order for them to be saved because man can't even will it on his own. Well, that foot loads the whole tulip with a, uh, the fact that man has uh, will never exercise positive volition. The better understanding of it is total inability, and that is that man is totally unable to do anything to save himself. God had to do everything. And that is what we believe and what we affirm. Now, what are some other meanings of helkuo? If against the will is not part of the inherent meaning, how would we prove that? Well, look at John. Don't turn there now. I'll just read it to you. John 12:32. Jesus says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, a reference to the cross, If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men, not just some men, not just believers, but all men to myself. And there it has the basic meaning of attraction. Another verse of the six uses of this word in the New Testament, all but one is in John, so we this is one of John's unique words. In John 18.10, he uses the word, Simon Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So, when he draws the sword out of the scabbard, now there's no resistance there. In fact, if you're a good soldier and you know that you're going to have to use this weapon in battle, you want it to come out of that scabbard with as little resistance as possible. You want it to leap into your hand so that you can be quicker on the draw than your opponent. So we see the idea that resistance and against the will is not an inherent nuance to the word, but it's just there in some context. The basic meaning is to attract or to draw. And the way that God draws all men to himself is through the gospel message of the cross. That is the thrust of this verse. This is what Jesus is talking about. No one can come to me unless the Father sent me draws him. And how does he do that? Through the cross. And then Jesus promises, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus is saying that God will take the initiative in the plan of salvation, but you have to respond And you have to accept the gospel. You not only have to be positive at God consciousness, but positive at gospel hearing.
Now in verse 45, Jesus tightens up his argument. There we read, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Now I want to stop there because I think that when these verses were added to the scriptures, that the verse break here was really bad. The last sentence, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, is a summary statement. The first half of the verse is a quote from the Old from the Old Testament in a New Covenant passage. In Isaiah 54.13, we read in the first part of the verse, And all your sons will be taught of the Lord. Now, the context of Isaiah 54 is that this is a prediction of what will take place in the, mess, in the millennial kingdom when Messiah comes. And it emphasizes the ultimate source of learning spiritual truth. We were taught of God. How do we learn spiritual truth? Because God teaches it to us. Man on his own cannot understand the things of God because we are spiritually brain dead and it is God the Holy Spirit who makes these things clear to us. And that is clear from the context in Isaiah 54 and other New Covenant passages that it is through the Holy Spirit that the Gospel is made clear and overcomes the uh, brain dead issue in the unbeliever. So that God the Holy Spirit functions at the moment of God consciousness as the human spirit. So here's the evangelist or the person giving the Gospel and you're witnessing to somebody. Now they are spiritually brain dead. They, the natural man, 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 12 to 14 says, the natural man or the soulish man, he lacks a human spirit, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. He's spiritually brain dead. So God the Holy Spirit substitutes for a human spirit and makes the gospel perspicuous. He makes it clear so they can understand the issue. And then it becomes gnosis academic knowledge, and then they have to exercise their volition positively or negatively to accept or reject the gospel. That's why you don't need to know all there is to know about every question some unbeliever might ask. You don't need to become a professional in apologetics in order to witness. All you need to know is the fundamentals of the gospel, that people are sinners, Christ died on the cross as a substitute for sin, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, and if you know that much, you can begin to witness to people and you can begin to clarify the gospel because it is the Holy Spirit who is the sovereign executive of evangelism and witnessing. So Jesus just quote he's not interpreting the passage, he's just quoting it to establish this point that ultimately people learn spiritual truth directly from God. They shall all be taught of God. And then he concludes, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Once again, he's identifying himself closely with the Father. If you believe the Father, you will come to me. If you don't believe the Father, you won't come to me. You're rejecting the Father. You've rejected the Father's provision, so you're not going to come to me. That's his subtext, is you have been negative at God consciousness, you're negative at gospel hearing, and you're not accepting me. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that he is the one from whom everyone learns revelation of God. Verse 46, not that any man has seen the Father. Now, wait a minute. Haven't we seen this somewhere before? Back in John chapter 1, verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. It is Jesus Christ and the second person of the Trinity who is the revealer of God the Father. No one has seen God at any time. Well, what about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? Who was that? Well, on the basis of this passage, it wasn't God the Father. It was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Well, what about Abraham when God came and had dinner with him one day? Well, that wasn't God the Father. That was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. What about uh, the, the Lord when he appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai and gave him the Ten Commandments? No, that was not God the Father. That was the pre-incarnate Son of God. It was Jesus Christ in His role as revealer of the Trinity. So from this we learn that it is the role of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, either pre-incarnate or after the incarnation, to reveal God. All revelation comes from God because He is the only one who has immediate knowledge of God. He has immediate 
and complete intimacy with God the Father because they are one. They are distinct persons, but they are one in essence. He knows everything that God has and he can reveal it because the scriptures are the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, 16. The scriptures are the mind of Christ and he is revealing his thinking to us in the 66 books of the Bible. Verse 46, not that any man has seen the Father, except the one who is from God, that is himself, Jesus Christ, he has seen the Father. And then verse 47, truly, truly, verily, verily, amen, amen in the Greek. This catches your attention. This is a point of doctrine. Pay attention. I'm giving you a divine principle here. I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Now notice, he doesn't say believe and go to church. He who believes and reforms his life. He who believes and stays off the bottle for the rest of his life. He who believes and gives up having a good time and partying and uh, doing drugs and all of these other things will have eternal life. doesn't say that. The issue is simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Man cannot do anything to earn merit or help God. Jesus did it all. That's why he said to tell us die before he died physically on the cross. He said it is finished. Everything is paid for. We can't add anything to it. I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. And here he, uses, he begins with the phrase, ego, me." E-G-O is the first person uh, pronoun I, and a me is the verb, meaning to be, I am. This is the personal name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. I am. Jesus, again, subtly claims full deity. I am the bread of life. And then he drives home the point. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. What happened in the Old Testament was just a physical miracle in order to demonstrate a spiritual reality. They ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. It wasn't enough to sustain them forever. Now remember, the Passover is approaching. In fact, when we had our map up here in the past, we saw that they, the crowds had been headed from the Sea of Galilee up here in the north, from Galilee, down to Jerusalem for Passover. But after the feeding took place, they became enamored with him as a possible political leader. So they head back up here to Capernaum in order to see if they can use him for their political purposes. Probably the vast majority continued their pilgrimage down to Jerusalem for Passover. But this crowd is bent on using him for their political purposes, and they've headed back to Capernaum. But the point is that in their thinking is Passover because it's that time of year. Now, Passover took place when God redeemed the nation out of Egypt, and then they went through the Red Sea and their miraculous delivery there and into the wilderness where God fed them by means of manna. What we've seen is that that is a picture of three things, the faith rest drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. Now, why is eating used as an illustration of this? First of all, eating is non-meritorious. Everybody can eat. It doesn't matter whether you're moral, immoral, good, bad, a sinner, legalistic. It doesn't matter whether you're smart, dumb, educated, uneducated, black, white, red, yellow, green, purple, Anybody and everybody can eat. It's non-meritorious. It is independent of merit. So giving manna to all indicates that fundamentally the issue of eating is non-meritorious. The issue is grace and God's provision. Secondly, it is continually needed. Every single day you have to eat. And that stresses the continual necessity of orientation to grace. Day in and day out. Third, eating is mandatory for life. If you don't eat, you don't live. If you ate once a week, like some of you eat spiritually once a week, you would die. See, we have to eat daily. We have to eat in order to have 
physical life, we have to eat spiritually in order to nourish our spiritual life. So eating symbolizes grace orientation and it symbolizes doctrinal orientation. Only on the basis of grace orientation and doctrinal orientation can we advance spiritually, solve problems, and avoid the traps of the crowd, the traps of arrogance and self-sufficiency. So Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Now hold your place here and look at how the Apostle... I want to show you how the Apostle Paul described this manna episode in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. It's a reference to the Exodus generation. And all were baptized, that is, they were all identified with Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And verse 3, all ate the same spiritual food. See, the manna was physical food, but it represented spiritual food and grace orientation. Eating the physical food was an illustration of relying on grace. And that's Paul's point here. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now look at verse 6. This is a preview of coming attractions. Now these things happened as examples for us. See, that's the Old Testament. The Old Testament is examples for us. It's very relevant for us, and that's why when we finish our study of Galatians sometime this summer, we're going to go into a study of the Old Testament because it's crucial for us to understand the Old Testament as a background for the New Testament, as we've seen in this study. Now back to John 6, and we'll wrap up. Now this is the bread, Jesus says, this is the bread which comes down from the source of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. When you eat this, ate the physical bread, they died. But if you eat the spiritual bread, which is Jesus Christ, you will not die. He is promising eternal life. And then he identifies himself. I am that living bread that came down out from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now this verse is a notorious verse in the Scriptures. I know that many of you come out of a background where you have been taught that what this means is that you have to continually feed on the Lord Jesus Christ through the communion supper. But this verse has nothing at all to do with communion. I'm going to illustrate that by two points in the Greek. First of all, it is a third class condition. If anyone eats, maybe they will, maybe they won't. And the word for eat is the aorist active indicative of fugo. Or it's an aorist active subjunctive of fugo. If anyone eats... Now, if it was a present tense verb, present is continual action in present time. Aorist is past. It's a summation. It's almost, sometimes it's called punctiliar. It's all summed up as one point. What he is saying is you eat once. Once. That's salvation. It's not continually coming to the Lord's table. It's not continually going to Mass. That would be a present tense. But it's one-time action. If anyone eats, all you do is for salvation is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ at one point in time and you're saved and you enter into the Christian life. It is not a process. It takes place in an instant, in a nanosecond of time. If you eat of the bread, and eating is accepting. Eating is taking it. Anybody can eat. It's non-meritorious. Eating is represents faith. It represents accepting something and making it your own. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, verse 52, the Jews misunderstand this and they take this metaphor literally. There are many people, many so-called Christians throughout church history who have made that same mistake. They ask the question, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
but he's not talking literally. He is talking metaphorically. And we will investigate that and the relationship of this whole subject in the next seven or eight verses to the Lord's table next Sunday morning. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to look at this passage this morning to understand the role of our Savior in providing for us that He is our nourishment. He paid the price. He did it all. It is all a result of grace. We have nothing to do with it. It's a free gift. All we have to do is accept it. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that is unsure of their salvation, that is without hope and without eternal life, that they would recognize right now that the issue is simple. It is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. At the moment of faith alone, you are regenerated. You receive new life in Christ and you will live forever and you can never lose that free gift. It is yours forever. Now, Father, we thank you for what we have learned here and the reminder that doctrine is the priority of our life and that we need to make it so. We need to organize our lives in such a way that we make doctrine the number one priority, always feeding on your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.